Hey you, welcome to Tea Talk, a space to share the therapy tea. I'm Shailene, your host, and I hope you'll join me each week as we sit down to share tips, stories, and conversations on getting better emotionally, recovering from trauma, and improving your overall quality of life. I want to remind everyone that even though podcasts can feel therapeutic, they are definitely not a replacement for therapy. Please, at any point, if you feel the need to take a break because the content is too heavy, please do that and take care of yourself. Also, if you're loving this podcast, please do me a favor and leave me a review, share your reflections with me on Instagram and share it with a friend who needs to hear it. All right. So I'm ready. You're ready. And we're friends now. So go ahead and sit down, cozy up and let's get ready for today's episode. Hey everybody, Shailene here. And I am here with Dr. Kelly Gentry said, yeah, just finish your doc. Congrats. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And we are here to talk about a couple of different things regarding the topics of domestic violence, but I'll let you introduce yourself. Why don't you tell us who you are and what you do? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. So I am Dr. Kelly Gentry and I'm still not used to that. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's like really cool to be able to say that. And it was a lot of hard work, but it's still weird. Little imposter syndrome. I hear it. <laughs> so I run a private practice. I'm a counselor. I'm a licensed professional counselor, but I'm also a full-time faculty member for the University of Denver in their school counseling program. And most of my experience has been in higher ed, even before I had my PhD and before I was uh, fully licensed as a clinician. I've worked in women's centers. I've worked as an academic advisor. I've worked as a manager of career services. And um, I'm always really interested in career development, but also in like empowerment and focusing on women's issues, Um, which you can see if you look at the trajectory of my career, how I got there. Um, and in my private counseling practice, I most I work mostly with women and mostly with women in their 20s and 30s. There's some variance, but that's like the majority. Um, it's just my favorite group to work with. Um, and that's what led me to studying into partner violence amongst the college population. Yeah. So tell us what, when you hear college violence, like violence among the the population of college folks, what's generally being talked about and what's generally getting missed? Sure. So violence in general, often when the discussion is happening is about sexual assault or rape, which are both incredibly important to talk about and to prevent and to put policies and practices in place when they do happen so that we can help those who have been victims of those things. But I did notice that while that is so important and it's still in the news and it's still unfortunately happening way too often that women who are in abusive relationships were being missed. And there's a lot, there are a lot of, there are a lot of things out there about women in abusive relationships. And when you hear domestic violence, I think you often, and I can't speak for everybody, but I think, and I asked the women in my study this actually, when they hear intimate partner violence or domestic violence, what they thought of. And of course they didn't think of any of their own experiences, Hmm. but you think of like that old, like, man and woman together in in their home they have kids, kids. and the husband and the and the husband physically abuses the wife and mm-hmm. and that's the only thing you think of and that's certainly part of it but actually the age that intimate partner violence is most prevalent is the college age it's ages 18 to 22 or 24 
And that is the age of the traditional college student. And so I felt there was a gap there in the research and understanding. Um, and of course it overlaps with sexual violence because sexual violence is often a part of um, intimate partner violence. Uh, but I guess it was important to point out that domestic violence or intimate partner violence doesn't just happen between a married couple. It doesn't mm -hmm. just happen between people who live together. Um, it doesn't just happen to people with kids. It's any kind of uh, relationship that is intimate. It can happen in. Uh, so I really wanted to focus on that. And I really did learn a lot in doing so. Is intimate partner violence and domestic violence, are those terms used interchangeably? So they are, but they shouldn't be. Okay, uh, tell us. Yeah, because domestic violence can be anybody in the family. So that's like if a parent is abusing a child, it can be anyone in the house abusing someone else in the house. Mm -hmm. While intimate partner violence is just that. It's an intimate partner. So it could be someone you went on one date with. It could be someone that you've been dating for a long time, but you've never lived with them. Um, and it's a very different, not very different. I, it's easy to see how people get them confused. Um, and I think part of part of my research was discussing that, discussing why maybe college women in these relationships that are very unhealthy and abusive are getting looked over because when people think of domestic violence, they're not thinking of college women in their dorm and their partner or the person they went on one or two dates with or the person they hooked up with once because it's okay to do that. And if you got abused by that person, that still counts. Yeah. So this is, it's interesting because as you're saying it, it's dawning on me of, yeah, that, that does make sense. I agree. I think that domestic violence, you're seeing like this very like stereotypical movie scene of like yeah. a woman trying to escape from a house and the guy's yeah. like hitting on her. And yeah. there are so many things that are missed by that sweeping generalization. And yeah. in, yeah, I I've never really thought about that. Like the college age or just like the young adult age. What do you think it is about that group that I can understand why it gets missed on the sense of if everyone's thinking of like, well, they're not married, it, yeah. they're technically not, are you guys even dating? Like those kinds of things. Yeah. But what do you think it is about the group themselves, why they miss it? Like, why did they not know that it's happening in your findings? What kind of patterns did you see? So that was a big finding in my study and it often has to do it. So actually one thing I should mention is, so I interviewed 12 women, all of them had been in an abusive relationship before they got to college, which means middle school, high school, they had already had some experience that could be considered and is considered abusive, but didn't see it that way. They weren't taught that it was that way. So they thought that was okay. They internalized that as like, oh, this is how relationships are. He, he calls me names. And I, I also want to clarify, because um, I think it's really important that I was looking at college, those who identify as college women who were abused by males. There's a whole other, there's a whole other research study to be done out there in same sex relationships, mm -hmm. but that's not what this was. I just want to be clear about that. And so they, they're 13, 14, 15 years old. Number one, thinking that it's okay to be called names and told what to do and controlled all the time. And also the other part is, even when we move away from that, like you, you described that stereotypical scene of the wife running out of the house and the husband like physically abusing her and hitting her and she's running away, people really only view abuse as something that leaves a mark on you physically mm -hmm. that you can see. 
And that was one of the things. And that's why when I mentioned before, when I said, so I recruited these women by sending out, I actually did it using Instagram and Facebook, oddly, and just advertising. Like if you've experienced name calling, controlling, financial control, physical abuse, or sexual abuse by a partner, you qualify for this study. And then these women self-identified and I interviewed them. And one of the first questions I asked was, when you think of intimate partner violence, what do you think of? And none of them saw themselves in that, Mm. even though they had self-identified already. And I, and then that became part of the discussion of, well, you identify yourself for the study, but you're not, you're not describing what you've experienced. You're not saying you see yourself in this. And they, it was often a big realization that came later on in our second, I interviewed them twice that came after the first interview where they had time to reflect on what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it is just that they were never taught what a healthy relationship was. And when you get to college, you have all this freedom, even if you're not living on campus, mm-hmm. but you're in what's called like emerging adulthood, you're exploring lots of things. You're not just exploring classes and career choices. You're exploring friendships. You're exploring romantic relationships. You're exploring sexual relationships and you have this freedom that you may not have had before and you have that freedom while also trying to navigate sometimes unhealthy situations that you can't recognize and there's no one there necessarily to tell you to like reflect that back to you and say like this doesn't seem so hot Mm -hmm. like does it seem like it's a good thing to you yeah I'm just thinking about what that would have been like. I'm trying to imagine myself in middle school, right? Around the age of 13, 14 and wondering if one of my friends, I mean, I would, I don't know that I would have even had like the verbiage around it. And what's interesting is, is like, I come from a, a pretty, like I had some dysfunction in my family. And so (laughs) I've seen those things, but it's one of those things where like, you don't understand it until you're out of it. Yep. That that was just not the normal thing. And so I imagine that's probably what's going on for a lot of the girls and that you met or came into contact with, or that struggle with this is like, they can see it for other people. But the other thing I was going to mention is that like, I'm thinking more about what do I think of when I hear domestic violence? It's also if I'm thinking of like the movies and the headlines and things like that, there's also like a socioeconomic piece to it too. Like they, it's like, it seems like someone who doesn't have a lot of money, they live in like a trailer and there's like an alcoholic person who's beating the wife and she's trying to make a run for it. And there's all this chaos, but I think you're right. Like, it's not super clear what that looks like if there's not physical violence involved. And I know we're talking more about intimate partner violence, but in what you mentioned is domestic violence can occur basically in a familial relationship that's that has nothing to do with intimacy. And so there are all of these pieces that get missed. And then if there's not something that you call it, then you just yep. assume that it's normal. Yep, exactly. That's exactly it. And a lot of them said to me just what you said, which is I didn't know what it was until I wasn't in it anymore. Some mm-hmm. version of that is exactly what they said. And their, their past, and a couple of them were still in these relationships. They weren't out of them, but, but it is something it's a, like you said, especially when you're in middle school, high school, like you don't, and I know maybe for me, I'm not sure how old you are, but when I was in middle school and high school, there was no Instagram or Facebook right. mm-hmm. or TikToks. So there was no, 
there was no one out there telling me all these different things. It was whatever I learned in school and maybe what right, I saw that was on it. TV. Mm-hmm. And so now they see a lot of this stuff and some terms get overused like gaslighting and, mm-hmm. and like everyone thinks they have OCD and mm-hmm. everyone's anxious. And a lot of that is actually true. Sure. But, the, but the point is they didn't have, we didn't have that language, but even with that, like we see stuff about, I don't know about you, but especially as like someone in the mental health field, depending on who you follow on social media, you'll see tons of stuff about gaslighting. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's out there all the time. And a lot of these women were experiencing that because that's what happens in abusive relationships, but they still didn't have the language for it. Again, it's just one of those things where someone could just like throw the definition and show you a picture of yourself. And you're just like, well, that's not me. Oh, a hundred percent. I, I, I can think back to some times where I knew that I wanted to be a therapist since I was in like middle school and Mm -hmm. I, my parents got sober at different times during my adulthood, but there was, there have been moments where I've reflected back and I honestly don't know, like when I graduated undergrad and I was going to grad school and that was some of my, my dad's hardest times in his alcoholism right before he got sober. And it's like, it's not funny, but it's like almost funny to me that I'm like in those moments, like, did it occur to me that he was an alcoholic? I actually don't know. Even though this is what I was studying, this is what I was going to school for. I knew it was bad, but I actually don't know if the moment ever connected until he went to AA and all these other things, but it wasn't until like, I think back to those times and I think you had a lot of information and it was right in front of you, but you know, this is why therapists have therapists and all of those things. You need somebody to reflect that stuff back to you. Tell me a little bit about the, so you identify those who are participating in your study and they're kind of like, oh, I didn't realize, even though I understood that I met, I checked off the boxes and even still it didn't occur to me. Hey, tea talkers. Did you know that 60% of home buyers reported that their mental health and close relationships were impacted during the home buying process? I'm not surprised. Purchasing a new home can feel incredibly stressful and overwhelming, especially in today's market. When going through the home buying process, you need a realtor that you know will have your back. That's where Jackie Walther of Square Deal Real Estate comes in. Jackie is a realtor that goes to bat for her clients and seems to know at least two of anybody that you could possibly need to help you alongside the process of buying your new home. And I say all of this from lived experience. Jackie sold me my current house, She has sold to my family, friends, staff, and even helped me to get into the first DBT of South Jersey location in Voorhees. So if you're in the South Jersey area and looking for a new place or maybe getting ready to sell, you will not regret having Jackie on your side. You can find Jackie on her website at www.squaredeal.kw.com. Okay, so I've said this before and I'm here to say it again. As an entrepreneur, a mom, One of the best decisions that I've made for my mental health, honestly, was to hire a house cleaner. Parenting itself, let alone running businesses, forces you to value your time really above anything else. And that's where Amanda comes in. Amanda Sousa and her excellent team come and they work their magic in my home every few weeks. And I can't imagine going back to not having her. Not only do they professionally clean my family's home with a toddler and two dogs, by the way, but they also leave the space feeling bright and refreshed. Plus, knowing Amanda is a part of my support team allows me to just relax and focus on the things that I want to prioritize, like my family and my businesses. If managing work, parenting, or really anything just feels overwhelming to you, don't wait. Hire support now. It's a step in the right direction, and I can personally recommend Amanda's team 
for excellent service and really reasonable rates. She offers deep cleaning as well. So even if you just want to get the house cleaned every now and then to help yourself out, I think that's a great place to start. So if you're in the South Jersey area, contact Amanda. You can find her at her website, apscleaning.services for a free quote. You can also find her on Instagram at APS Cleaning Services. I promise it's a call that your future self will thank you for. Tell me a little bit about your work with them and how things unfolded for them. Sure. So during the first interview, we did a lot of talking about how they defined things, what they saw as intimate partner violence. And I really just asked them to tell me their story and I just let them go with it. And for so many of them, probably, probably nine of the 12 participants had never said any of this out loud before, Hmm. maybe eight, one or two were in, were thankfully like seeing a therapist and starting to work through things. But even then we're still afraid to like talk about things out loud. Sure. And then after I asked them to share some experiences with me and just, I really didn't, I didn't guide them too much. I just said, so tell me your story. Tell me why you, what brought you to being a part of this study and tell me about your relationship. And that's what they did. And then what I did was after the first interview, I went back and I transcribed. Well, I paid someone else to transcribe because that is a tedious <laughs> And after like five minutes into the first interview, I was like, I am not doing this. And, and I also, I slated just for context here. I told them, oh, the interview will be, I I think I said something like 45 minutes to an hour. And some people stayed on the call with me for two hours, three hours, because no one had ever listened to them before. Like they had never comfortably, and maybe they weren't so comfortable, but like shared all of these details before. And so I went back and after I received the transcriptions back from the lovely people who did that, I created something called an iPoem, where you take pieces from things that people say or from these transcriptions and you remove the unnecessary parts to really make an impact with the words, to share the story for the pieces that stand out. And what it did was, what I did was, and I didn't do it for the entire interview. I just took pieces from um, stories they were telling me about Mm -hmm. their abusive relationships. And they all experienced, many of them experienced similar things, but they all experienced all the different types of abuse. It wasn't one kind of abuse anyone was really sharing about. And so I took it and I created one or two poems for each um, participant. And then during our second interview, I read the poem back. I read the poem to them and asked them how they felt hearing that. And a lot of them were like, they couldn't believe it. They said, wow, that's really validating. I can't believe that's my story. I can't believe those are my words. I've not heard my own story read back to me before. And it was really, and I asked them for a way, you know, to describe it. And they, some of them said empowering, some of them said validating, some of them said sad. They all wanted a copy. They all said, please send me a copy of this. Because again, if you've not ever recognized yourself or verbally out loud to share your story, it's gotta be pretty impactful to hear your own words. Well, and if you don't share it, then it can't be reflected back, right? So, and you can't share it if you don't say it out loud. So there's like this backtracking of, well, if this doesn't happen, then I don't get access to what this next thing is. And but you also don't really even know that that's what you need. How, why poetry? Like what, do you have a background in poetry or in writing? I 
writer? Well, I, I don't have a background. I want to say, yes, I'm a beautiful writer. Uh, no, I don't. I don't have a background in poetry. I do have a love for literature. And as an undergraduate, I went back and forth between like English and psychology as a major. I love reading. I love books. And I like to think that maybe one day I'll write my own book. But part of it was also just the methodology I chose to use. I wanted something that was very feminist. And this approach I use, and it's Dr. Carol Gilligan's methodology, is very much like just let the person talk and then we're going to create we're going to create these poems um and I'm a I like to think that I one of the things about me is I'm a pretty creative person I like to think so <laughs> I mean I couldn't paint you a picture but I'm creative in other ways yeah and and I think for me I really liked bringing that piece into it and if anyone's ever interested in Carol Gilligan's work she actually still I think is a professor at NYU she can just create she writes She's a psychologist, but she also knows literature and history so well. And she writes about like mental health and psychology and combines it with lit like old literature and Greek mythology in a way that is just like mind blowing. First of all, you have to be just so brilliant to know all of those things enough to be able to break them apart. But she also uses it in her research with with different groups of people, but she is very much a feminist researcher. She took psychology and said like, you've created all these theories, but they're all very focused on men and pathologizing women when they're not like men. This is how women are, stop pathologizing us. Mm. And that's why I chose her approach. That's Um, really cool. I love hearing about different ways that just promote what it could look like to recover from something that it doesn't have to look a certain way. Do you have an example of one of them that you can share? And so just keep in mind, this is broken apart, right? Like I took pieces to make this poem from the, from the interview. I was like, well, I guess I'd better do this so that he doesn't leave me. It was horrible. I didn't want to do it. So it was really painful. I was like, no, I don't want to do it. No, I don't want to do it. It became a problem again. And he tried to force me to do it one time, then got mad when I set my boundary. He would get upset if I said no. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So my, I'm observing like my heart rate is, was increasing. Definitely feels intense. I feel like my throat closing up a little bit. The, you said that these are called I poems. If someone's Mm -hmm. writing an I poem, what do they do? So you take a piece of whatever you're reading Um, and you find a like piece of the, um, you want the piece of the transcript, sorry, the word lost, I lost the word there that you want or whatever it is you're, you're using and you just remove the unnecessary parts, the, the, uh, Mm. the giving unimportant piece of information in the middle. And it really, it really just creates this like really impactful thing. And I will say like, I know just from knowing that that participant story that very little was actually remo- removed from that section. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting because it's um, getting to the heart of somebody's story and their experience and what's being said yep. without disclaimers and justifications and yeah. other things that can decrease the potency of what the story is it sounds like yeah exactly so I'm hearing the importance of a couple of things one is the 
importance of being able to acknowledge and own your story, how great it is to be able to, because not everybody has that, but to be able to share that story with someone who's safe and someone who will listen to it and validate that experience. But also hearing the, like the role creativity can have in just helping you to process that because even me listening, and I'm sure for some of the listeners as well, that brought up emotion for me, like that stirred up emotion for me, even though that's not my story. And so Mm -hmm. I can imagine just that that might help somebody unlock something that maybe they didn't feel they had access to get out before. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly, I think that's exactly what it did for the participants. And I got emotional and I've read that before, obviously, uh, because it just, it is so impact. I think it's just so impactful. And I know that some of them wanted it as like a reminder of like a couple of things, because another thing that I, fo- that I asked them about that I thought was an important question to ask, because it's out there as like a discussion point often is, do you consider yourself a victim or a survivor? Hmm. And I think that helped them answer that question too, a little bit. And for a lot of them, the answer was both. Hmm. Some, some preferred the term survivor, some preferred the term victim. And I think some might've not said either if they hadn't heard that poll. Hmm. That's interesting. What do you think the role of poetry, writing, accessing a, just like a more creative side to help your healing? What role do you think that that can hold in terms of whether somebody's in therapy or not like how can they if someone's listening to this and maybe they don't really know what to do with it but they felt something and they were to sit down and write how can people get started like where do people take this information and and where can they go next yeah great question journaling is such a big thing that's out there and I don't know I think sometimes people get caught up in like they have to write and I talk to my clients about this all the time like you don't, there's no, no one's telling you you have to write a certain thing or you have to sum up your day every night when you go to bed. Like that's not what a journal or a diary or writing, if you're using that as your method of creativity has to be like, let it be what you need it to be. If it's writing down angry words or writing down your whole story, or if it is recounting your entire day in the written format, because that's how you release it from your chest Mm -hmm. and off your heart and out of your head. So that it, whether it's to reflect on it, and sometimes people get caught in that too, but I have clients who will like journal their feelings out and then they will literally like crumble it up and throw it away. So it's like, it's out and now it's gone and I don't ever want to see it again. And then I have other people who hold on to it. And I think that letting, I was going to say letting go of the expectation or not even going in with an expectation. Mm -hmm. I think that's what sets everyone up for like feeling like a failure or like they can't do it or that it's not something that works for them is that they assume that there's a certain way they have to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think letting go of that is very freeing. And then you can just write if that's how, if that's what feels good to you Mm -hmm. using that creative side. So you talked a little bit about some of their responses. They cried, they asked for a copy of it. Do you any, like, do we know what happened to them or afterwards? I reached out to make sure everyone was okay. I provided them with resources. Most of them were not in these relationships anymore. Hmm. One or two were. And a couple of people stopped responding, I think. So I interviewed 12 people the first time and only 10 people came back. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because after saying it out loud, it was just too much for them. Mm -hmm. But now it's been 
it's probably been a year and a half since I've actually spoken to any of them. So I, I don't, I don't know. They all obviously still have my contact information if they want to reach out. But yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. And actually at this point, many of them have probably graduated. A couple of them were either at the point of graduating or were graduate students and we're talking about their undergraduate experience, but I would, I'm hoping that they've moved into the next part of like their adult life. <laughs> sure. Sure. As we prepare to wrap up, what are some things that you want people to pay attention to when it comes to either the college population or the young adult mm. population and intimate partner violence in its entirety? Yeah. So I think the big thing is to start talking about healthy relationships at a very young age. And that starts with friendship. We're not just talking about romantic partners and sex. It's not that. But if we start talking about healthy relationships in elementary school and middle school and high school and what it means to be a good friend and what it means to have mutual respect and the, the focusing on the positive part of that then we have to do less of fixing it later, right? <laughs> less of focusing on the negative later and saying, oh, but this is abuse. This isn't okay. I mean, we have to do that too, unfortunately. But I think if we start early, it would be really helpful. And like you asked earlier, why do you think so many of them had those experiences in middle school and high school? And it's because they were never taught what a healthy relationship was. Mm-hmm. And I was purposeful in not I did not include in my recruitment material, any information, any requirement or information about growing up in a household where there might've been abuse because I didn't want that. I wanted to make sure that this was separate from that. It was just women who were experiencing abuse in college. But when I asked them to start with their story, almost every single one of them told me that they did not know what a healthy relationship was. They grew up in a house where there was some sort of abuse. It wasn't always physical abuse, but there was some sort of unhealthy relationship, whether it was control, financial control, that they can now identify having had their own experience. And so talking about that early, talking about what healthy relationships are, I think is a really great first step. And I don't think beyond teaching, like I have two elementary school age kids, like they learn about being a good friend, but like, that's it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that often stops until we get to a point where we're also teaching them what not to do. And I think there's got to be a a middle ground there where we're still continuing to talk about it. My husband is a high school counselor and I asked, I've asked him many times. I don't know why I keep asking him. It's not going to change, (laughs) but I keep saying like, do you guys ever talk about like relationship stuff? Do you talk about healthy relationships? Do you talk about abusive relationships? Do you do any kind of programming around that? And he's like, no, not really. Mm. Um, Not, not in his school. And I think that that's the case in most places until there's an incident where they feel like they have to address it. I don't think that that's happening. And so then these women get to college and then all they're hearing is how not to get raped instead of teaching people how not to rape. Like it's all the language around it. It's they're not starting early enough and we're not focusing on the right thing. Yeah, it's so true. There's so many things that can be fixed just by talking about it because talking about it normalizes it instead of making it feel like something shameful or bad. And then- The other piece is always, if somebody's disclosing something to you to listen and validate and not, I think for whatever reason, it's like really embedded in our culture to not trust things. So it's like when someone comes forward, why is the automatic response? Like, well, are you sure? Like, so just keeping that in mind too. Well, this was awesome and really helpful. Let people know where they can find you if they want to learn more about your work or learn more about intimate partner violence in general. Sure. Thanks. So kellygentrycounseling.com is my website. And then Career Counselor Kelly is my Instagram and Facebook. And you can find out lots about me there. 
Awesome. Well, if this episode is one that resonates with you, if you know someone who needs to hear it, please send it their way. And as always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. All right. That's today's episode, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to Tea Talk. I hope that your cup of tea is full today and that you were able to pull something out of this for yourself. If you know someone that needs to hear this episode, please send it their way. And let me know what you're thinking by sending me a message on Instagram. I love hearing from you all. And make sure to follow the podcast so that you never miss an episode. And if you are loving what you're hearing, please leave me a review and a rating. It would mean so much. All right, friends, take good care and I will see you next time.